Welcome to Real Clear Politics' latest podcast, The First 100 Days. I'm David Byler, and I'll be your host as we examine President Trump's first 100 days in office. In our final episode, Real Clear Politics managing editor Emily Gooden talks to Cliff Sims, special assistant to the president and assistant communications director for White House Message Strategy, about the president's first 100 days. Then, Real Clear World editor Joel Wykenot talks with Robert Zaretsky, a professor at the University of Houston and an expert in foreign policy matters about the political situation in Europe. First up, Emily's conversation with Cliff. I'm Emily Gooden here with Cliff Sims, the special assistant to the president and assistant communications director for White House Message Strategy. He's going to talk with us about the president's first 100 days in office. Thanks for being with us, Cliff. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah, I'm just curious. What does the White House see as its biggest accomplishment in the first 100 days? Oh, gosh. Uh, I don't know if you could put just one thing at the top of the list. I mean, there's really so many things that I can point to. Uh, I mean, if you just look at this by the numbers, uh, you know, he enacted more legislation and signed more executive orders in the first 100 days than any president in a half century. Uh, enacted 28 pieces of legislation uh, to this point, more than any other president since Truman, 25 executive orders, uh, the most of any uh, 100 days in over 50 years or something like that. You've got to put the confirmation of uh, Justice Gorsuch on there. I mean, it's the first time that a president had gotten a Supreme Court justice confirmed in the first 100 days since 1881, I believe. Uh, you know, the immigration policies that have dri- driven illegal border crossings to a 17-year low, uh, obviously very important. And the job-killing regulations, these rolled back uh, more through legislation on that side than, than any president in U.S. history. And I think that's something that maybe people don't really, um, you know, it's easy to kind of gloss over that. But literally, in the first 100 days, President Trump rolled back more regulations through legislation than any president in history. So presidents that were in office for eight years, uh, he's done more in 100 days on the regulation side, cut red tape, than, than anyone has done in their entire term. So it's pretty incredible, and through those, just saved about $18 billion annually. Um, but, you know, if you step outside of just, you know, the accomplishments that you could point to with hard numbers like that, I think there's also something to be said for... Uh, just the, the, the renewal of the American spirit, as the president called it in his joint address to Congress. And if you look at the economic optimism that has just sprung up since he took office with consumer confidence reaching its highest level in 16 years, uh, CEO confidence uh, just hitting new highs. I, I saw a stat earlier this week about home builder confidence had reached a 12-year high. Uh, I mean, you just go down the list of these things, uh, accomplishments, I think it really comes back to Uh, You know, America has kind of got its swagger back in the first 100 days of the Trump presidency. And I love that you mentioned hard numbers because, you know, President Trump is a businessman. He's very proud of his business record and his background. And to me, business and politics are two different things when it comes to measurements. So, you know, first quarter business numbers aren't quite the same as as political victories. But these numbers do make it sound like President Trump is kind of focusing more on a business philosophy in running the White House and is looking for very tangible things that he can see get done. Yeah, I think that's a fair way to describe it. And, you know, he's approaching this uh, with that business background and, uh, you know, results are what we're looking for. 
uh, whether you're a CEO or the President of the United States or you're just you know, somebody in Iowa, a farmer in Iowa right now. I mean, everybody uh, is looking for results. And I think that's what we've really been focused on here since we've been here is, is let's do things that actually have a real people impact. Let's do, deliver results to the American people. And, you know, by the time this, this podcast uh, posts, uh, we will have rolled out a, a massive tax cut uh, for the American people. And that's something that you ran on. Uh, you know, some of the things that get glossed over, I think, just we've done so much, uh, kind of rapid fire, things like, you know, withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, you know, these kind of multilateral trade deals that have decimated, uh, you know, manufacturing around the country in states like, you know, Michigan and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, and, you know, states like that that have been maybe historically, at least in recent history, been democratic-leaning states that swung to the president uh, because he was... Uh, talking about those issues that actually impact people. And so that's the thing that we've been really, really focused on uh, since we've been here. Yeah. And, you know, we've been talking about a lot of accomplishments and everything you guys have done, but we also unfortunately live in an era where failures can become uh, glaring and newsworthy. And I'm thinking particularly of the attempt to repeal Obamacare. Is this something you guys see as a big failure or just a temporary setback? Is there still going to be Obamacare? at the end of this year? Are we going to get another shot at it? Well, I think one of the things that I would point out is, you know, we're talking about 100 days things here. And really, where does 100 days come from? It's kind of an arbitrary deadline or arbitrary number that we're putting out there. And I think that's one of the things, that, as I look back and kind of reflect on uh, where we've come to this point in terms of, of what we've been able to do with, with health care reform, uh, is, you know, there was kind of an arbitrary deadline put on that at one point. It's like, oh, we're rushing to get it done by... Uh, you know, this date, and we're going to try to get a vote done on this date and kind of that kind of thing. And I think, uh, you know, having been able to kind of step back from that a little bit, the president has never wavered in his commitment to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, prices continue to skyrocket, premiums uh, skyrocket, premiums continue to go up, uh, deductibles uh, continue to rise, access to care continues to go down. Uh, those problems have not changed. And the president is committed to, to fixing that. And so being able to step back a little bit, take off an arbitrary deadline, and, and continue negotiations and working toward uh, implementing a health care system that is going to drive down costs and increase access, which is what the president ran on, is something that we have continued to do. And so uh, you know, I would say stay tuned from that. we got a, uh, we got a couple of days until uh, the 100-day deadline. We may see some more uh, activity surrounding health care between now and then. Uh, but I, you know, I would certainly believe that uh, that we're going to be able to get something done on healthcare that's going to really benefit the American people. Mm-hmm. I think we've seen, especially with this new president, there's a level of fascination with him that we don't see with other presidents, and there's been a level of fascination with the kind of the backstory and how the sausage is being made, so to speak. And a lot of that, yeah, a lot of that has to do with talk about the White House staff and how they're getting along and what's happening there. How is the mood at the White House these days? Well, I think I'll take the first part of this, you know, on the uh, on the interest side. You know, before I came here, before I joined the campaign, uh, I owned a, a media outlet in Alabama, and you know, I didn't really come up to Washington a lot to to cover national politics, but if something was going on where, uh, you know, there was an Alabama angle and something happening here in D.C., a reason for me to come, uh, I would, you know, come up here and cover something, go in the White House briefing room and that kind of thing, and I would always see empty chairs, 
you know, that it, it's never the briefing room certainly wasn't packed, and you know how small the briefing room is. Yeah. And so that was my context before coming here with President Trump, and now the briefing room, every chair is filled, reporters down both sides of the chairs, sometimes even down the hallway and down the stairs behind the press briefing room. So the level of interest is certainly uh, unprecedented. I think that is, uh, that is fair to say. As far as some of the, the palace intrigue stuff that, uh, that the press loves to write about, I mean, I'll be honest, that stuff just really does not take up much of our time here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's hard to, to not see it because, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's on cable news and everybody wants to write about it and those kind of things. Uh, but in terms of, like, our workflow here, uh, it's really, it really doesn't impact us. And I think it's sometimes even kind of funny uh, when there'll be some kind of big palace intrigue story raging and, you know, the people or so-called factions or whatever it may be that are involved in those stories, I'm sitting in a room with it, with all of them, and we're actually doing work on things that matter, and it never comes up, and it's like not even, you know, nobody's even even thinking about it. So, <laughs> it's it's you know, not even an elephant in the room, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like it's gotten to, to like, parity level at this point, <laughs> uh, the, the level of, of attention that, that the smallest little palace, palace intrigue element can get around here. But the mood here, you know, uh, I can only speak from, from really my, my personal experience. I'd say the first thing is, you know, I walk into this building every single day and thank God that I have an opportunity to work here. I mean, what a privilege and what an honor uh, to work in this place. And I can say, you know, we've been here a few months and that feeling when I walk in here every morning has not gone away. And then, you know, when you get into the, the day's work, um, you know, it's a job and you put your head down and, and you do the best that you can and the pace is hectic and the hours are long. Um, but there's also kind of this um, camaraderie that forms, I think, here by being in the foxhole together. And so it's been, it's been an awesome experience so far. Mm-hmm. And Cliff, I know you're busy and I appreciate your time and don't want to take too much of it, but I do have um, one final question. I wanted to end on a bit of a personal note. As you mentioned, you had joined the campaign and I know you got to get to know Mr. Trump really well since you guys were, you know, in the trenches together, as you said, that bonds people. And I'm just curious, have you noticed any changes in him since he took the oath of office, things that we as the public don't always get to see? Yeah, I haven't. I mean, I think that's one of the things people that really love about the guy is, uh, and, and I've actually been able to see this really, really firsthand, is, is he just kind of, he's just kind of a straight shooter. I mean, just what you see is what you get. Uh, I've been able to see that now uh, even more since we've been here, you know, on the campaign, um, he was on the road so much, traveling around the country, and I didn't always travel with him, and so there were a lot of times where we were in Trump Tower uh, working, and he would be out, you know, doing his thing, campaigning and all of that, and so I didn't get to be around him as much. Here, I've actually been able to see it more um, on a regular basis, uh, on an almost daily basis, where the things that he says in, in private meetings and closed doors uh, mirror what he's telling the public. Uh, I think the most uh, relevant examples that I could point to are when these foreign leader comes. The things that he talks about publicly with regard to foreign policy, um, he, he advocates uh, hard for America's interests behind closed doors as well. I've been really, uh, really impressed by his ability to do that. And so I really don't think I've seen a change in him. Uh, that being said, you know, the, the, the presidency is a weighty office it's a weighty responsibility and the decisions that you're making there um 
you know, as big of deals as the president has made as a businessman and, and built a, a global, uh, you know, business empire, if you will, um, still it pales in comparisons to making decisions of life and death uh, with regard to our men and women in uniform and those kind of things. And so I don't think anyone could be in that office and not be affected by the weight of those decisions. Uh, but in, in, in difficult circumstances like that, uh, the cream always rises to the top, and the president has always been someone who, I would say, rises to the occasion, and he's continued to do that as the president. It's been a, a real privilege to see it up close and personal. Well, and that is a great note to end on. Cliff, thank you for your time and giving us this insight into working in the White House. We really appreciate it. You bet. And Sarah Sanders just walked in here and wanted me to make sure that I said that it's just a real privilege to work in the office next to her as well. She wanted me to make sure that I noted that. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks, you too. Now, here's Joel's talk with Robert. So, hello, this is Joel Wykenot, editor of Real Clear World, and I am here talking to Robert Zaretsky, a uh, professor at the University of Houston, um, a France watcher, and an analyst for uh, who, for among other people, writes for Real Clear World and has written a lot about this election. Um, so Robert, welcome. Thank you for talking to us. Good to be here. Thanks, Joel. And uh, what, what jumps out about you about what has happened today? It's Sunday night. We've seen Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen get through to the second round. Um, what, do you, what has surprised you about this election so far? Well, I guess you could rephrase the question, what hasn't surprised me or most any other France watcher about this election? It's quite extraordinary. Um, the fact that the two finalists for the second round in two weeks, Macron and Le Pen, um, are in fact the finalists is not terribly surprising. They were the two favorites. Um, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it remains unprecedented in the history of the Fifth Republic. Um, to have two finalists running for the presidency, neither of whom represents one of the traditional political parties. Um, and it's astonishing. And it's not at all clear at this point what this will mean for the near future of the Fifth Republic, not to mention its relations with both the European Union uh, and the world. We heard, um, going back to what you said about the collapse of the mainstream parties, and it's been funny to me how quickly sort of we've gotten used to Macron and Le Pen being the, the front runners, and, and at least those of us who follow us every day, we're already a bit inured to how unusual that is, to the point where indeed it's not surprising. But in listening to some of the people from the other parties and watching the moods at, at Socialist Party headquarters, very sullen. And listening to uh, some of the commentary, I saw, I saw one representative for Le Republican calling it a nightmare. And it, where do they go from here? What do they do e even now in the second round? Where do they put their support and how do they sort of regather themselves? It's an excellent question. And I think the uh, les notables, the notable figures in all of the traditional parties are trying to figure out the answer as you and I speak. Uh, for the socialists, it's catastrophic. Um, this is the lowest vote count that a socialist has received in a run for the presidency since the mid-1960s. 
when Gaston de Fer, I believe in 1965, received about 6% of the vote, uh, Benoit Hamon received just a bit more than that. It's really shocking. He received even less than he was polling, which was already extremely low. Right, and I think that many socialist voters, when they stepped into the voting booth, decided that this vote had to be what the French call a vote utile, a useful vote, rather than um, a passionate vote, a vote from the heart. It had to be a vote from the mind. And they realized that the clear and present danger for France, from their perspective, was Marine Le Pen, and to a lesser degree, François Fillon. What about, you talk about the vote utile, so presumably uh, what you mean there is is those who would have supported Hamon instead of instead voted for the centrist yeah. candidate Macron. But exactly. what do we do with, with the fact that if you take the far left and the far right combined, Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen, they really got a lot of votes and they overlap in a lot of places. Oh, they received about 42%. Um, and it's extraordinary. You're absolutely right. We've talked about how in certain respects, extremes meet. Um, and the movements um, led by Marine Le Pen and Jean-Luc Mélenchon um, have certain unsettling parallels or similarities. Um, both of them tend to be sovereignists. Sovereignists, <laughs> that's a word I have a hard time. <laughs> they emphasize the sovereign nation. Um, and they are both extremely skeptical about France's continued role in the EU. As you know, Le Pen vows that when she becomes president, her very first um, act will be to um, offer a, re a referendum to the French people to have France step out of, to do a Frexit, to um, begin the divorce from the EU. Um, Mélenchon. Um, one of the reasons he left the Socialist Party um, um, in the 2000s was because of the Lisbon Treaty. Mm. Um, he has never been a friend of increased European integration, especially at the monetary level. He warned that uh, the consequences would be disastrous for France, and in certain respects, he, well, he, wasn't, he wasn't wrong. Wasn't fully wrong. Exactly. And, um, and, and so they, it won't be surprising during the coming two weeks and the second round that Le Pen will try to flip Mélenchon voters. Many people who voted for, and we don't have the exact numbers, but it's clear that a number of people supporting Le Pen for the first time in 2017 are blue-collar workers mm -hmm. who had never before voted for Nacional. And they were doing so for the, for the same reasons that you have blue-collar workers flocking to La France Insoumise, Mélenchon's movement. Um, and it's not all that different from those blue-collar workers in the United States who traditionally have voted Democratic, but last November voted for Donald Trump. So we have a situation now where you have two candidates who come from 
outside what has been considered the mainstream at least maybe it's the mainstream now but you know we'll we'll have to see if that's the case right this is obviously at this point a changed election it's it's an election about what how france sort of sees itself now and on one side you have a candidate le pen who says i am the candidate of the people who embraces the idea of nationalism um, in a, in a sense that has been talked about very disparagingly for a very long time. She has embraced it successfully. And Macron, on the other side, you have this guy uh, come out and embrace the other much maligned entity, the European Union. He's, he's unabashedly globalist, unabashedly pro-EU, whatever that means. So this is going to be a very, very interesting element to watch and how do you know the is there any predicting where the votes are going to come from who's going to support what and 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 who are the you mentioned Melanchon's voters maybe going Le Pen but what kind of coalitions might these two set up to look to build coalition building is going to be much easier for Macron than it is for Le Pen for obvious reasons um the FN remains radioactive for all of the other French parties. It's not, well, it's not shocking, though it's surprising how quickly he made this announcement when, but when Fillon conceded this evening, um, he also called for his voters to vote for Macron in the second round. He said that he does it with a heavy heart, but that he said he is, um, um, he's always insisted upon the importance of voting, and it's inconceivable for any supporter of Les Républicains to vote for the FN. And so um, if you have Fillon, who was, apart from those other candidates on the far right, um, whose votes will probably go to Le Pen now, um, Le Pen is not going to find anybody who wants to cut a deal with her. Right. Um, what she's going to be doing um, um, frantically between now and uh, the second round in two weeks is, 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 is looking to flip not just Mélenchon voters, but also the right wing of the Republican. Um, the base of Fillon's support were conservative Catholics, um, one of uh, the principal drivers to his campaign that salvaged his campaign after those scandals first hit the front pages in late January, early February, is an organization called Sans Commun, Common Sense, which is a profoundly, if not reactionary, I mean, a profoundly um, um, Catholic, perhaps even reactionary Catholic organization hmm. uh, that threw its support behind Fillon. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Le Pen or her surrogates begin to seek out, um, begin to contact Sans Coman at this point. Right. Um, as for Macron, he has a different set of problems. All of the Republican, all of the conservative uh, figures, Juppé, Fillon, Christian Estrosi, have all called um, on the party's members to vote for Macron in the second round. Um, the problem is 
that he doesn't have a political party, <laughs> unlike Marine Le Pen. Amash was created less than a year ago or about a year ago, and he now has to field four, 577 candidates for the legislative elections. That's which are happening, which are happening sorry, in June. Hey, you brought up legislative elections and what I, I think uh, probably a lot of our readers already know, but some of them don't, is that after the presidential election, we also have legislative elections putting together a parliament in June. And this is going to be very, very important in terms of how much power this new president actually has. Exactly. And traditionally, um, the legislative elections have always followed the presidential elections in France. In other words, whoever is elected president is then, in a way, um, that vote is validated in the legislative elections when French um, citizens vote for that president's party, for his deputies and for his senators. Mm -hmm. um, the great <laughs> the problem, if that's the word, is that it's not clear who Macron's, well, it's clear who his supporters are, but they don't have a political moniker. And so he's going to be creating a coalition government. He's going to be turning to the left, no doubt. He's going to be turning to the right, no doubt. And he already has the center. Um, significant political figures like François Bayrou, um, who uh, was the perennial also ran in presidential right. elections three times before this election when he decided not to run again. And he is perhaps France's best-known centrist. Um, and so he has to create not just a coalition government, but he has to create a coalition of parliamentary deputies who are going to allow his platform, which is not which remains quite vague for the moment, um, but turned it into law. And so um, right now it's a huge question mark um, about what will follow should Macron become president in two weeks, right. about the nature of the legislative elections. Um, what's less of a question mark, Joel, as far as I can tell, is that after the presidential election and even after the legislative elections, France will be as divided then as it is today. Marine Le Pen is not going anywhere. As you mentioned, over 40% of the French voted for an extreme um, uh, candidate. One who, in one way or another, um, um, wishes to go beyond the Fifth Republic. And um, and Macron will face the same situation once he becomes president and he has a workable coalition in um, the House of Deputies that uh, Donald Trump is facing now. America is no less divided since November 8th. If anything, it's even more divided. So and this... one perhaps make the same claim about Great Britain following Brexit. Yeah, yeah. So this... Um... This election and, and sort of just the broader story of elections we're seeing in the West right now is, is, is this cementing not only of new political divisions, but of new social divisions. And it doesn't seem like there is uh, 
as much political amity between those uh, those separate sides and uh this election probably in 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 our reading doesn't go very far towards healing those divisions no no they don't um and uh for i do think that macron unlike trump has great potential to bridge um uh this terrific abyss uh, that we find in France right now. He does want to bridge it, um, which is something that we cannot say about our current president in the United States. Whether or not he will have uh, the majority in Parliament with which to do it, whether or not uh, the institutions of the EU will be, will be willing to work with him, and by that I mean the German, um, in order to do it. For example, by offering a less punishing a less punishing monetary policy right um it remains to be seen and that's going to be very important isn't it if 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 the powers that be on a european level want to stop this uh, it want to stop their own sort of political slide at a national level they need to start doing things differently i think Everyone, exactly. everyone sort of understands that, um, except maybe the Germans, who are the ones who matter. So if you get if you get a Macron in office, I mean that's a, that's a big boost for the EU, and isn't it com- uh, isn't it a bit incumbent upon them to take advantage of that in some way? Well, you think so, and I think so. It seems so obvious, doesn't it? Everything um, that should seem obvious never does to them, but. <laughs> And I, I don't know what Merkel is going to do between now and elections in Germany in September. Um, but I suspect that she cannot maintain the status quo. She needs to do something dramatic. And um, that may well be working more closely with France and loosening this, 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 this suffocating um, um, monetary policy that Germany has strapped on all of the EU member states. Robert, uh, one question that I think our readers are going to be interested in is, was there a sort of Trump effect in this election? <laughs> yeah, gotta ask it. Well, <laughs> did, he did, in effect, endorse Marine Le Pen, didn't he? Um, whether or not um, French voters... Um, thought well of that, I thought badly of that. I don't think that he had much of an impact. Um, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if many who did vote Le Pen um, um, think very little of Donald Trump. Um, um, but, um, and again, I'm thinking of these blue collar workers in those de- the deindustrializing um, um, parts of France. Um, but I'd like to think, and maybe I'm being just, um, a wild-eyed optimist in this regard, Joel, but, uh, that the Trump effect, um, will be very limited, that as far as Donald Trump goes, so goes Donald Trump, um, and that what we've seen in Austria what we've seen in the Netherlands and what we are now seeing in France 
uh, represents a, a countervailing um, uh, trend against the Brexiteers, against the Trumpistas, against those um, um, who um, support the Victor Orbans um, and um, and the like. So um, it'll be interesting to see how the next few months sort themselves out. Um, it just, it no longer seems as inevitable as it did two, three months ago that authoritarianism was going to be the new normal in European politics. Uh, we may have reason to hope that it won't be. Perfect. Uh, perfect note to end on. Uh, Robert, thank you very much for joining us here. This has been Robert Zaretsky and Joel Wykenot. And have a great week. It's going to be an interesting runoff. Thank you, Joel. And that's a wrap on our first 100 days. Stay tuned for our newest podcast, Politics is Everything. National political correspondent Caitlin Huey Burns will explore how the Trump era is affecting industries, people, and companies in a way politics hasn't done before. Thanks for listening.